Where would you go if you were feeling unwell or wanted to refer yourself for health and wellness support? If you needed a repeat prescription or want to book a GP appointment, the answer is to go to shwh.co.uk because the Sunderland Health and Wellness Hub has all the information, advice and links you need about local healthcare services in Sunderland and it'll direct you to the right healthcare services for your needs. So for all your health and wellness needs, visit shwh.co.uk. This is our People podcast telling the stories behind South Tyneside and Sunderland NHS Foundation Trust. Hello, I'm Fiona Thompson. I am a communications officer with South Tyneside and Sunderland NHS Foundation Trust and I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Claire Boylan and Chris Cairns uh, and we are recording from the Alexandra Centre in Sunderland Royal Hospital. So we're going to go into a bit of detail about what it um, what happens here. So Claire, why don't you kick us off with telling us a bit about what your role is with the Trust and what it involves. So I'm an elder life specialist practitioner. I work with the Delirium and Dementia Outreach Team at the Alexandra Centre and we assess patients 65 and older who are admitted via the emergency route who have cognitive problems at Sunderland Royal Hospital. Whether that's delirium, dementia or underlying cognitive impairment, we provide advice and support to patients, families, carers and staff about delirium and dementia and we also provide education. What sparked off your interest in working in the NHS and uh, what jobs did you do before you became an elder life specialist practitioner? So I've always wanted to work in the public sector and I was torn between being a paramedic, a police officer and a nurse but I was also unsure whether I had the confidence or attributes when I was younger to do any of the jobs. So I went and studied at Sunderland Uni and got a, a degree in health studies. Following that I took a temporary post as a HCA for a few months but that continually rolled on. So my aim was to apply for nursing at Northumbria but at the time the trust was seconding and I was advised by the ward sister at the time, Margaret Campbell, who's no longer with us, to hold off and apply for that. I was successful in the application and studied um, a PG dip in nursing at Northumbria and the only placement that stood out during my studies was my placement on E51 which is a care of the elderly ward. I found working with older people to be very fulfilling and rewarding and I applied for a job as a staff nurse and was successful. I worked there for about four years. I then transferred to E52, another care of the elderly ward and I was there for about four years as well. I applied for a job as a junior sister and was successful. That was a very challenging role, but I really, really enjoyed it. And then an opportunity came up with DDOT. They had been in post for about a year, the guys who worked here. And the role sounded very interesting and varied as well. So here I am eight years later. And you mentioned HCA there, which is something we talk about. I know we talk about all the time in NHS, but that's healthcare assistance, isn't it? Um, And that's a a role that a lot of people use to kind of start their careers. and. Uh, they are a, an integral part of our trust, yeah. aren't they? they? Do fantastic definitely, work and definitely the place would fall ro- apart. The place, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're such an important cog in our in our yeah. in everything we do. So um, it's interesting to find that that was your way into it as well. And so, Chris, you are in a relatively rare role with our trust, and is it a new role or is it just new to me? Because you wear a purple uniform, that's quite unusual, isn't it? Why don't you tell us a little bit about what this all involves? So um, this is a new role. I currently work as nurse consultant for older persons. It was a brand new role that I started in February. The role, I think they believe there's only three nurse consultants in the trust as far as I'm aware. There might be one more hiding somewhere, but I don't <laughs> see many purple uniforms about. Um, my role involves developing strategy for our care of the older departments. and um, That involves looking at our education programmes, at things and projects that we hope to take forward. 
I also support the International Nurse Mokoski training once a week. I'm hoping to develop some research for the department as well and we've just recently appointed a Dr. Heather Yem from Sunderland University to assist in completing that. My other aspects of my role is that I, I, I line manage the, the DDOT service. Um, I also see patients for the DDOT service but I also have a clinic every Friday in which I um, assess people for delirium um, and possibly dementia and refer on if it's appropriate. So it's quite a, a varied job role which I really, really enjoy. It's very much in um, sort of my skill set that I've developed over the years um, and I'm really, really enjoying it at the moment. And what was your own route into nursing? So my own route into nursing was that um, I originally did works experience um, as part of sixth form in the medical day case unit, decided I really, really wanted to work in the hospital. So started volunteering um, initially on what was F62, which was a care of the older person's ward at the time. Funny enough, actually, it was assisting patients to eat and drink who had dementia. I then moved on to, to join the uh, student nurse programme at Northumbria. Eventually qualified again, working on a care of the older person's ward, F61, which was under Dorothy Greenwell at the time. Uh, worked on there for, for several years before moving to E56, which was a which is our dementia and delirium ward under Jackie Lynch, who still works for the team. From there, again, I worked for a few years and worked for, for DDOT. Eventually, after a few years, becoming a matron, uh, primarily over at South Tyneside for three years before moving on to this role. And while you manage a team, you're also quite involved in patient care. So what does that see you do? Um, so DDOT provide me with a couple of patients a day um, to assess, to keep uh, keep me busy and um, I sort of have my own small caseload. But also I run a clinic on a Friday, which takes referrals from ED, uh, front of house, uh, from DDOT and also patients that I hope to see myself to run a face-to-face clinic which I'll, I'll look at people who are recovering from delirium and ensure that they, they've got the best treatment plans possible. I've already mentioned DDOT and that's an acronym for, uh, I'll let you read it out in the right order. Delirium and Dementia Outreach, outreach. There we go. Um, and so you carry out 5,000 assessments on patients each year, which is a huge number of patients to see. What does that involve and how do they help in further care? So uh, DDOT uh, assess 5,000 uh, patients every year. They generate their workload from the um, everybody who comes in over the age of 65 who's an emergency admission, has a cognitive screening test completed. Anybody who um, tests positive as part of that cognitive screening test is assessed by DDOT. So as part of that assessment, a practitioner will go down. They'll complete a, what we call an MMC test, which is a cognitive screening test. They will look at how the patients behave and how they react and how they're presenting. Um, and they will try and identify why perhaps that patient has a cognitive deficit. So is it delirium? Is it caused by being unwell in one way? Is it that they've got a long-term cognitive impairment that hasn't been identified? Or have they been identified um, as having dementia? And the team will work closely with the mental health team. They'll be able to pull records that, that perhaps our regular staff can't access. They will then ring the family member and get a full collateral history. They will then compile all that information into a treatment plan for the patient, whether that's be how, what, what deliri- type of delirium they have, how we might remedy that delirium, you know, what treatments will, will help um, reduce the severity, or whether it's that that patient perhaps has an unidentified um, cognitive impairment or dementia and refer on to the appropriate services um, after, after their admission. 
this information helps um, staff recognise whether this is a long-term impairment or something we need to treat and it also means that we can much more personalise the care that that patient receives during their admission. So is it something that's done for all people over a certain age or is there something that tends to, to lead a, a staff member to think we need to look into this a little bit more detail? So it's for everybody over 65 but the team is ageless so we will also take referrals for anybody of any age within the trust so for instance if you know, we had somebody say, you know, who was 40 years old, who come in, who was confused. Ward staff can refer on to the team, and so the team would, would, would go out and, and assess that person. Thank you, that's really helpful to know. I'm sure that's really helpful for families to know as well that that, that takes place. Um, do you want to give us a bit of a rundown between you what the team does and what those roles involve? So the team does many different roles, actually, um, and a lot of things that happen behind the team. So the, the most visible role... Um, is the practitioner role in which you know one of the practitioners will go down to the wards and carry out the assessments that I've discussed. The team also has a big role in education, so they they have their really highly acclaimed sensory um, teaching. Uh, the teaching uh, is carried out either in the Alex Centre or sometimes in the Education Centre in various places across the ward. The team also um, runs the Alexandra Centre. And our practitioners have a big role in that, but also our DDOT helper staff. The DDOT helper staff will provide therapy sessions, reminiscence sessions. They will, um, you know, use various different aids and tools. Sometimes it's even something as simple as having a film day for the patients just to sit round and eat round a table. The helpers also go out onto the wards. They will assist with meal times, with eating and drinking, but also with reminiscence sessions on the ward. So it's, it's very, very varied. We've also got uh, Claire, who's sitting opposite, who's uh, brilliant at, at doing sort of all the, the PA and the charitable uh, links. So we had the, the uh, fan centre come in recently, who did a, a lovely video with us, who, uh, which I've just been told has gone perhaps nationwide. Um, so the role is very varied. It ranges from going out and assessing patients, providing education, developing um, new sort of... Um, projects and, and things that will help on our ward um, it, it, it's really varied and I, I think the team really enjoy their roles. And the centre itself is really uh, warm and welcoming um, I'll take some photographs to share as part of this but we've got some artwork up that links into kind of all of Sunderland's history so all the things that we would recognise as, as people who grew up in the area so Vaux's and Joplin's, um, Pyrex bins, always used to get lost in bins um, and it's got lots of kind of what would we describe them as? Items that we might recognise from our homes? Yeah, it's like a memory de- wall. Yeah, yeah, it's great. There's loads of things that I recognise in there, but I also recognise from my grandparents' house, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess these things just spark those conversations it with does, people. Yeah. And it's always very nicely decorated, so we're decorated for the Women's World Cup at the moment, uh, which is a staggering effort by the team, as ever. And the Alexandra, itself, Alexandra Centre itself, where did it get its name from? Because I always thought it was something to do with Alexander, Queen Alexandra Bridge, but it's something quite different is it isn't princess it alexander? Yes. So princess, princess alexander yes so princess alexander was a patron saint of alzheimer's disease so it was june lawson who used to be our matron right he's retired now and um, we discussed it as a team before we opened um and came up with the alexander center based on that yeah. for uh, obvious reasons yeah well I, w- I wonder how many people actually knew that that was a reason for it but i think it's a lovely little story princess alexander has been the patron saint of the alzheimer's society since 19 there we go so next time everybody passes the alexander center 
we'll know why it's called that. Um, and uh, obviously we're all South Tyneside and Sunderland Trust. So over at South Tyneside, we are refurbishing um, Ward 8. So what is going into that to make it a dementia-friendly space? So the Delirium and Dementia team uh, did audits across a lot of the wards, including South Tyneside, and made recommendations in line with the latest research and, and thinking of how best to make a, a ward dementia-friendly. So using that information and all of the research that the team's done in the past, we've made recommendations on how Ward 8 should be decorated. The ward is going to have a neutral sort of pastel colour scheme. Each bay entrance is going to be a different colour. And, you know, these things seem really, really simple, but being able to say to a patient, go to the yellow bay, instead of saying go to bay 3, in which they might not be able to visually see the sign, can make things a lot easier. All of the patient area doors are going to be brighter colours, again, so they're attracted to those areas and will use those areas as where staff areas are going to match the walls. And again, if you haven't seen it in action, you'll think, oh, you know, this is not going to make any difference. But honestly, it really, really does when you can say to a patient, go to the yellow door, which is the toilet, and, and people naturally avoid the doors that are the same colour as the walls. Um, it makes a massive difference. All of the signage is going to be dementia-friendly. I think the lighting's going to be altered to be, um, you know, neutral and shadow-free. And um, I'm really, really excited about it because I think if we can get this ward right, we can get all the wards right across the, both sides to be really, truly sort of NHS laden, I think, in design. Yeah. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Well, that's a really good point, actually, because as somebody who visits wards, they all kind of look a little bit the same. All the walls are the same colour. I would struggle to, to, to differentiate between one bay area and one ward yeah. and one in another. And that's just how Tyneside Sunderland's a, a, a much bigger site. Um, and that would surely make it a much better experience for visitors as well as our patients, because yeah. I suppose it gives them a, 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 a bit more defined areas I, I totally agree i think you know if we even move past what what the benefits are for somebody with dementia and just move on to somebody who hasn't got any cognitive impairment the environment's going to look more homely it's going to be more aesthetically pleasing it's going to be less cluttered and more easy to to identify where you are in a ward because actually we 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 work in a hospital every day and we become a bit blasé as to you know how how stressful it must be to, to go on a ward, even when you don't have a cognitive impairment. I know if I was admitted to hospital, it would be probably the biggest and most stressful event that would happen that year. Mm, absolutely. Um, and when you mentioned a few things that are quite interesting, so you've mentioned um, shadows and you've also mentioned dementia-friendly sign. And how are they? How are they important and how are they different? So the lighting actually in the Alexandra Centre doesn't cast any shadows. Um, I know you can't say this on the podcast, but we're all now looking about <laughs> no, at the floors, before, showing that really there's no point. shadows under the tables. And the reason for that is that is that um, in you know certain stages within dementia, your visual system can be impaired, your identification of objects and where you are can be impaired, and if you have a delirium, shadows can look as if they're animals or snakes or objects. So by minimising shadows people with dementia can navigate the floors better because they don't see what looks like a black line that they may have to step over but also people who have delirium where their visual system again is impaired and they may be hallucinating those shadows can become real objects or things and so by removing them it can make the patient less distressed that's really interesting and it seems quite obvious now you talk about it but I guess when we design these things we don't necessarily think about it but we've already touched on dementia and delirium how do we find define each of those and what are the causes of delirium and can we say what the causes of uh, dementia sometimes are so delirium is an acute change in someone's presentation and it comes on suddenly within hours and days but it can resolve just as quickly 
in some patients. In others, it can take weeks and months, um, and it can lead to chronic cognitive changes, and some people can be diagnosed with dementia as a result of delirium. Delirium is one of the most common complications in older people and can increase the risk of death, and I think a lot of people don't realise that, and why that's why prevention is, is better than management with delirium, and that's why we do the cognitive screens trying to prevent delirium in those people with underlying cognitive problems and dementia. People with delirium can prevent, like, present, sorry, like Chris said, confused, disorientated and agitated or on the flip side, quite lethargic and sleepy. And there's different subtypes of delirium. So people can be hypoactive um, where they're sleeping, they're lethargic, they're not getting up and moving. It puts them at risk of lots of different complications such as falls, pressure damage to the skin, malnutrition, dehydration and things like that. You've got um, a hyperactive delirium. Someone might be distressed, very agitated. Um, difficult to manage their behaviour because they're, they're, they're not living in reality. Like Chris said, they have hallucinations and delusions and things like that. Um, or you can get a mixture so people can be throughout the day be hypoactive and then hyperactive as well. You can get quite a florid delirium as well where people are hallucinating and there's a lot of reality distortion there as well with people. So it can be really, really detrimental to the person. Well, I know as a family member who experienced an episode of it and I've also come across it in news stories as well yeah because sometimes it crosses over into where police are called because yeah. Yeah. you know people are upset they think people have broken into their homes yeah. and all sorts of things that you know that could genuinely happen but in yeah. certain circumstances it hasn't um and it can be really concerned for somebody who's who's looking on what's what's the kind of what are the telltale signs and what do people need to do People need to look out for the symptoms of delirium because it can be, like you said, really frightening and distressing for the person and their families watching mm. it as well. So it's a sudden change in someone's behaviour. So if, if someone suddenly changed their behaviour, that's a telltale sign that someone's delirium, delirious as opposed to dementia where, you know, that's a chronic pro- problem that will progressively get worse. It won't, it won't get any better. Um, so looking for those signs and symptoms of delirium, it's a sign that someone's physically unwell, something's wrong with them. And there's lots of different things that can cause delirium. Serious illnesses, infections, medications, constipation, people wouldn't think, dehydration, malnutrition, and just the hospital environment. Like Chris has described the environment to you and what, what problems can cause delirium during admission. And just having an, a change in the environment, making it clutter-free, more aesthetically pleasing, calmer as well. Hospitals are very, very, like Chris said, stressful for they're people. They're quite overwhelming places Yeah, they're very overwhelming. There's a lot of noise, there's a lot of distractions, there's a lot of different people that people might not recognise. And that can be very distressing for patients mm-hmm. as well. So it's about your approach to the person, how you're speaking to the family and carers and educating them about what delirium is and how to calm a person down. Involving family and carers in the care as well, getting them to come along because they know that person better than we do and they can nine times out of ten calm a situation down when someone's hallucinating and in their mind this is really happening and it's very very hard for us sometimes to calm people down and I think that's why the introduction again following um, the pandemic of the carers passports being very 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 beneficial to our patients and a lot of other patients as well. We're going to have a bit of a chat about the carers passport later on we're really pleased you brought that but um also dementia as well what kind of telltale signs do we need to look out for in our loved ones and also in ourselves I guess you know what is there a bit of a a list you would so the risk factors for dementia is smoking drinking a lot of alcohol unhealthy lifestyle lack of exercise they're some of the risk factors that put you at risk people are living longer as well people are living much longer due to fantastic health care so the symptoms to look for 
um, with dementia is loss of memory and it's not just loss of memory as well it can affect your language problem solving skills and the inabilities to just think and do things that every other person can do it's like I said a chronic cognitive problem that will progressively get worse and the most common forms of dementia are Alzheimer's disease and vascular disease there's lots of different other forms of dementia but those two are the most common common forms what kind of physical signs do tend to show with both of these so uh, I think in terms of so physical signs yeah so physical so what, what kind of um, you know does do, does dementia have any kind of like physical giveaways and same with delirium is there something that people need to look out for is it is it really just not that simple it isn't always that simple. It, it, it can affect such a wide variety of functions within your body that, that the symptoms can be different from person to person. So some people don't always suffer overtly with the memory loss first. Um, people get disruptions in the sleep, for instance, sometimes in early signs. Uh, some of the research shows now that, that, that actually people start developing dementia 15, 20 years before they show overt sort of signs that the family would notice. There's all sorts of research. There's, there's things to say the way you walk can predict whether you're going to get dementia that actually once you've had dementia that you can predict what type of dementia by the way you walk but I think what what really is important to look out for with dementia or delirium is if there's a sudden if there's a there's a change in your family member particularly with dementia it's much more slow you know is that person getting that little bit more forgetful when they took out of their element of the corpus much much less uh, much less well than they would have previously you know, some people will go in and, and the first symptom is my dad's forgot how to use the microwave or the TV remote or he can't use the skybox as well and those things seem really, really simple but actually that might well be the first signs for dementia. With delirium it tends to be more of an acute change so it, you know, if somebody wakes up suddenly very confused I think when you're a little bit older people seem to write off increased confusion as oh well this person's 85 years old it's sort of I wouldn't say normal, but it's it's wrote off a lot more. If I it's kind of expected when yeah, you get older, isn't it? If I woke up suddenly confused tomorrow, I'm you know 36, 37 next month. People would think it was an acute medical emergency. I would be rushed to hospital. Why have I become confused? People would be doing CT scans and all sorts of tests on why somebody who was physically healthy the day before has become confused. But when eighty-five year old Bill or John comes into hospital suddenly confused and they're eighty-five, there isn't there doesn't seem to be that sense of urgency out there in the community and I think initially before we did a lot of the education within the trust it wasn't necessarily taken as seriously as you would hope but actually you know that's not the case it is a medical emergency it actually has an increased rate of mortality for delirium so it's something we should absolutely take very seriously. How do we treat delirium then is there is there some, is there some kind of medication or what do we what do we do to actually get to the so it's not treating the delirium as such, it's managing the symptoms of delirium that we do, but the, the underlying treatment for delirium is looking for the underlying cause. So is it an infection? We'll treat that infection. Is it a serious illness? We'll treat that serious illness. Is it constipation? We'll treat that. Is it because they've been for surgery and they've had anaesthetic? That can cause delirium as well. So it's managing the after effects with those type of thing, but looking for the underlying causes. So you need to and play detectable not, almost, don't you? Yeah. And if it's not already been addressed, then we can address it and speak to the teams on the ward to put a management plan in place and how to manage that delirium. Okay. And um, we've talked a little bit about the Alexandra Centre, but what do we do to get our patients physically moving and thinking and and being a bit more active? What kind of activities do we provide? 
So post dementia and delirium can be quite detrimental, as was said, for our patients' well-being and lead to complications such as we've said, falls, dehydration, malnutrition, skin breakdown. Um, and that can increase a person's length of stay in hospital as well and that in itself is detrimental to the person. So our hospital has like programme assistants, she'll see them around with a pink t-shirt, so on a fa- fabulous. So they provide cognitive and functional therapies in the Alexandra Centre for the patients. Um, the cognitive therapies inc- include reminiscence and talking about life stories. Those are particularly aimed at people with underlying cognitive problems and dementia as the focus on the person's long-term memory as people are likely to have a better long-term memory with dementia than they are a short-term memory. Other cognitive therapies that they do are reality orientation, and that's very, very important for delirium because we want to get that person back to their baseline. As well as patients with dementia, we want to get them back to their baseline, so reality orientation is very, very important for our patients. The guys also do quizzes and games, and all the exercises that they do target specific functions to improve cognitive abilities. It's also very important to keep active during admission. Um, the team encourages patients to get up, get dressed and keep moving whilst they're in hospital. Chris might talk a little bit about the end, hashtag end PJ paralysis movement mm-hmm. afterwards because he's done some work on it recently. A lot of research shows that in admission to hospital there's a decline in older people to perform routine activities such as getting dressed, bathing and toileting and those changes can lead to a loss of independence and the need for long-term care which we don't want we want patients to go home be in their own home their regular routine and things like that so the team provide functional therapies they do group exercises sit and be fit lots of fun fun things getting them moving um and they also use there's free physiotherapy sessions that are accessible on the tv via hospedia if people want to tap in at that as well yeah. and I know I've seen the game sessions and the film sessions in action and as somebody who's super competitive I love playing the games but also it's just really lovely to see the patients sitting around watching the you know shared experience with the film yeah. for example yeah. um, and it kind of get, gets them off the ward and changes scenery and socialisation yeah. and, and isolation and normality as well yeah and normality you wouldn't think that people are isolated in hospital but they are mm. they're by themselves for a lot of time with strange people mm-hmm. and bringing people with who are like-minded together as well we try and structure our therapy so we get people who have the similar dislikes and and likes together and people just are very much more animated than when they're out on the wards we had a student session a teaching session a few weeks ago and a few of the students had shadowed us and sat through a session on the ward and the patients were all from a51 the patients were quite low in mood on the ward they weren't really interacting they weren't really communicating with ward staff they come round here they did a, a fantastic therapy session they got back to the ward with the students and that's all they chatted about for the whole entire day so it shows you the positive benefits of, of, of what the helpers do here because I'm sure one day kind of seems like the next sometimes when you're in hospital yeah, for a while yeah and that's why people are disorientated they don't know the day the date the time but we have our orientation clocks on the ward but it's very, very difficult. People can easily become disorientated. If you took all of my devices away from me, mm. I wouldn't be able to tell you. I only know the date because it's written down on a piece of paper for me in the morning. <laughs> and the other thing is you're, you're pretty good with um, uh, tea, coffee, treats on this, yes. in the centre. Improving nutrition and hydration is really, really important. The, the health uh, therapies are based on a programme um, and it looks at multi-component therapies which we've discussed the cognitive and functional ones but single component therapies and that's pretty much maintaining hydration and maintaining nutrition as well so it's really important for our patients to um there's eat and drink basically 
um, and we provide a lot of support and, and guidance in here as well and the guys go out on the wards and they can encourage people with hourly fluids to visit people who need support and guidance at meal times to encourage them to eat and drink and we provide a lot of snacks different things that you might not get on the ward we used to do fruity friday so we'd buy and we can't wait for the stall so on friday oh, yes it's going to be the first time since reopening in march yeah. that we do fruity friday so we've got the stall down um near maternity so we're going to go get lots of fruit we've got a file and we and it's about tasting the fruit telling us what they were memories it invokes memories from childhood and things like that we're trying sometimes get something that's a little bit more exotic as well so it's not only about doing a it's a cognitive therapy session it's encouraging nutrition and hydration because there's a lot of water and fruit as well so we try and buy those type of fruits and the chances are if you're sitting having a chat you'd be watching the film if you're playing a game you're more likely to have a cup of tea and a biscuit yeah, or definitely. because it's just kind of part and parcel of yeah of us, of us taking a break and you've also mentioned the fruit and vegetable um so that is a new initiative by the trust we've trialed it but it's going to be permanent so there's going to be a permanent fruit and vegetable here at sun the royal and also at uh, South Tyneside District Hospital, but we're also looking to make sure that our staff um, have access to it elsewhere as well. So we're coming up with ideas about how people can make sure they can get their five and more uh, fruit and veg. Uh, but it's been fantastic um, success for us, and hopefully uh, it'll be the same going forward because uh, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Made a massive difference. And Chris, um, Claire's already made a mention of uh, PJ paralysis. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So there was a end PJ paralysis summit several weeks ago that I talked at and mainly talked actually about what the activities that the team do at the centre to get people up and moving but NPJ paralysis the initiative really is that when somebody comes into hospital if you remain in bed um, for any length of time or remain in your chair you actually lose muscle mass and lose ability to mobilise it's particularly more pronounced the older you get Um, so it's very very important for the people that we look after that they're up and moving and walking to the toilet or you know moving about the ward as much as possible so the NPJ paralysis um, summit talks about ways in which to get get people to to mobilize one of the initiatives the trust has took up um, that I believe was headed by Rob Common was the rise and shine game which involved having um, sort of a a box and some tokens and, and various things that would get patients up and moving to you know out of the bay into the nurse's station but on top of that also socially interacting with the staff um, while they were moving about because it's very very important that we do everything we can and actually by carrying out something like the rise and shine game you can do it without really having to make, make a conscious effort to do so because the patient wants to get up and be involved and you know engage with the staff and you know I suppose break up the monotony of that day and that's a, a sort of fun way to incorporate that movement and reduce the yeah. negative effects of and um, we'll be sharing some more details about the rise and shine game uh, because it's something that we've helped develop uh, with artist Bob Ollie um, and we're hoping to, to market it basically so others can benefit from it too uh, which I know there's been a really uh, a great deal of work going into that um, I, I know that it's, I've seen it in action um, and it's great just to kind of give our patients something to focus on yeah. and get them up and about a little bit and I suppose with the the and pre-pager paralysis when we're all feeling ill and sometimes it's lovely to have a day in your pyjamas and uh, just catch up with yourself but you know if you're, if you're dressed and ready for the day you are ready to to get stuff done more motivated yeah. aren't you and I know I had a relative in hospital recently uh, he went in for surgery and um, when I went in he was he, he was he was dressed both times and he just kind of he was ready to go home basically because he wanted to go home um, but he just 
I think he just felt a sense of pride and kind yeah. of, you know, he felt himself in his own clothes rather than sitting around in his pyjamas. So I guess it kind of depends on the circumstances for each patient. But um, I knew when he was in his, when he was dressed, he was all right. He was yeah. doing okay. Um, and I know that a lot of the work that you do is focused on uh, being the link between families and carers in the hospital. So how do you keep them up to date with their loved one's condition and what do you do to support them? So we speak to all of our patients, families and carers initially on admission and we keep in regular contact with them throughout the admission because we routinely review our patients as well. We off, we follow our patients up in our clinic if they've got an unresolved delirium um, and we speak with the family members during that clinic as well. We run a telephone clinic as opposed to Chris's face-to-face clinic because that worked quite well during the pandemic for our patients because a lot of our patients would forget they had a clinic appointment and we now write to the patient and the families find out that they've got an appointment and they can be there during that appointment as well. There's lots of reasons why people can't get to a face-to-face appointment. So it's about giving a lot of variety um, to people. We'll have an information area out the front at the Alexandra Centre. There's tons of resources there. It's it's for staff, patients, carers, families, so anyone can come along. Um, If you've got any questions, just chat to us. Sarah Houston, who's one of our new Elder Life Programme assistants, she's relaunching our Chatty Calf that we had before pre-pandemic, and that's going to be coming up in the coming months. Um, so any ward staff can refer families or carers who have any concerns or queries we're going to initially run it once a month to see how it goes um, and then increase it as need be so what will happen during the chatty cafes so basically whatever the concern is that the patient or uh, the relative or family member has will address that it might be that um, they don't really understand what delirium is and what to expect what to expect when the person gets home whether they can take the patient home or not and manage that delirium at home a lot of people don't realize that delirium is often environmental and it's caused by the hospital environment itself and a lot of deliriums resolve quite quicker when a person goes home with the right level of support though obviously a lot of people can't go home if they don't have the support there um, we will talk about if people have underlying undiagnosed cognitive impairment we'll talk about referring to community services for further investigation on discharge and explain what that process will entail um, and if someone has dementia and they don't understand a person's family member has dementia and they don't understand what to expect in the future we can discuss that and we can refer on to different services in the community that might be able to support them. The Sunderland Carers Centre have um, a dementia service. We've got Action on Dementia, who are a local charity, who do memory cafes and befriending services as well. We have other local charities that we work with as well that we can refer on. We, we talk about the Fans Museum a lot because we encourage people to go over there and, and take their family members over there as well if they've got an interest in, in sports. Brilliant stuff. Um, and I know I've heard the team on the phone to their to relatives and it must just make, make such a difference to families knowing that somebody's given them a call to let them know how their loved one is. And it's communication such a key part of recovery as well, isn't it? Very much so, very much so. Because of your patient's anxious and distressed. The family member's going to be anxious mm. and distressed as well. And it might be that we have to reiterate this information over and over. It's a stressful situation. If I'm stressed, I'll forget stuff straight away. So family members are just the same and they just need some guidance and support into what to expect. Because they might have come in and seen their, their relative hypoactive so they might be sleepy and oh that's fine they're calm not a problem they might come in later on and the person might be agitated and they don't understand the different subtypes of delirium so it's just going through it again Mm. with family members and keeping them updated and and communication is key and I guess if you're dealing with older people the chances are that their relatives are sometimes a little bit older as well so you're kind of the key people really to make sure that you can get that information across especially when people can't 
get in to visit mm. as well. Some people still can't get in to visit. Some people don't have transport, and keeping them, keeping in contact them with them via telephone is really important as well, and just keeping them up to date with what's happening. Yeah. I'm sure that's massively appreciated by our, by our families as well. Um, and in terms of tra- training and education, um, I know that you do a lot of work to keep our colleagues uh, up to speed with uh, the skills they need to learn to uh, help our patients and their families too. What kind of things do you do? So our mandatory trainings on ESR, via ESR, but in recent years we've developed the sensory experience, which again, everything stopped because of the pandemic. But in recent, during the pandemic, we used that time to develop our teaching a lot more and we've developed a um, DDOT workshop. So it's an hour and a half long. It's we're, it's based at the Alexandra Centre. It's ad hoc, so you just book on it via ESR. It's it's all over communications at the minute. Um, we've just started up. We did our first one the other day. It's very, very popular. So the sessions include discussing how to involve families and carers in a person's care during admission. We talk about the carer's passport, John's campaign, this is me, the little blue butterfly wristbands that you might see the patients wearing. That's just to indicate that a person's got cognitive difficulties to staff, mm. that they might need some support during admission from a member of staff if you're speaking to them and they can't reliably communicate their needs. It indicates, you know, a lot of our patients like to walk up and down, keep moving and things like that. And that when they've got cognitive difficulties, they might leave the ward. If a staff member, you see that, a person wearing those those wristbands, you can see that they're a patient and, and not just a relative or someone visiting. So the pers- purpose of the DDOT workshops, it helps staff gain an insight into how sensory defi- deficits, cognitive difficulties and dexterity problems can cause great distress to patients in hospital with dementia or delirium. What we hope is that by personally experiencing the struggles people have, that our staff will better understand the stressful time experienced by their patients and a result for them, emphasise and support them with respect. I know that Harry and our team helped uh, film a session the other day um, when you were doing the sensory sessions and I saw a little bit of it and just within those few seconds I could tell how overwhelming it must be for patients because you really do a fantastic job of of showing how many things are going on all at once and it must just be so hard for patients anybody really to kind of deal with all these things but when you are suffering from dementia or delirium both it must just be so much to kind of take in it is it is so people wear glasses so it's different types of visual problems that people might have so we we make them wear glasses it might be glaucoma it might be cataracts etc etc um, we have them wearing headphones and it has a lot of overlapping noises that Chris kindly um, recorded from A56 so it's the telephone ringing, it's the buzzer ringing, it's the Baxter pump colleague going, it's the bed pump, it's all the white noise that you don't really hear but if you sit quietly and listen you can hear a lot of reverberation and buzzing. Um, we pop gloves onto people that are quite sticky so it gives them dexterity problems and we ask them to do everyday things like getting dressed, um, going to the toilet, trying to feed themselves trying to give themselves medications, doing everything, things like jigsaws and all of the activities that we expect people to be able to do in hospital. Mm. And it just gives people a little bit of an insight into what that person might be experiencing in a hospital. And in turn, the member of staff might be able to empathise on how that person is managing during their admission. Because we're all in a rush. I suppose it's easy just to be a bit... We're all capable of it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, but... That must just be really tough for patients and also I suppose it just shows how you need to help them or how our family members might feel in the same situations. But we also link in with quite a a few others. Uh, So how are they 
um, involved and how do we help each other. You've already mentioned the Family Museum and Natural and Dementia, so I don't know whether you want to tell us a little bit more about how we team up and make a difference. So the Fans Museum explains itself. They come here, they do sport and memory sessions with our patients. It's it, they, they get a lot of, out of those sessions. You've seen it yourself the other day. The, the, were, the patients were not very chatty at first and everything got going and you couldn't shut the patients up after that. So it is, it's just, it, it brightens their day up, it, it improves their mood, it enhances their well-being, and they get a lot out of it. The patients didn't stop speaking about it. After the both sessions that we've had with the Fans Museum, family members have contacted us to thank us for it Oh, as well. that's brilliant. That's lovely. Because yeah. they brought in all sorts of stuff. There was like football tops, old football boots. Yeah. Old actual, yeah, old studs. Yeah. Actual trophies that have been won yeah. by teams. Um, loads of books. I think people enjoy yeah. quite looking to do the they photographs. They really enjoy the photographs, yeah. Um, and I it guess just invokes memories for people as well and takes them back to their youth. Uh, when they were growing up, what they experienced, really, really happy memories. And that's what we always try to tap into, mm. the happy memories. And I guess it's a subject matter to get people started on, isn't it? Rather than just, yeah. what did you do, used to do work-wise and things yeah. that's probably going to be quite hard work for them to think of, whereas yeah. you're giving them the kind of material to talk about, aren't you? Yeah. Tactile therapies mm. are very, very important for our patients, touching things. Um, what the helpers do, it's a, it's a low-tech, high-touch therapy that they do, so tactile touch really goes a long way with patients to respond very, very positively, nine times out of ten at that. Good. No, it was an absolute joy to see, and the Fans Museum volunteers did an absolutely superb job. They are fantastic. Um, they yeah. know their stuff, don't they? They do. Um, they are just walking fact files of information. Mm-hmm. And this, we're so good with the patients as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a real task to sit down with a total stranger and have a chat sometimes. It is, it is. Especially like, in a hospital setting as well, yeah. uh, which I suppose the Alexandra Centre kind of helps get around that because it's it's more of a kind of community centre feel, mm-hmm. isn't it? Uh, but they do fantastic work, and I know that we'll, have, we'll get them back soon, hopefully. Yeah. Action on Dementia is a local organisation. What do they do to help support our work? So Action on Dementia are a local organisation, and they rely on charitable donations for a lot of their work. Um, pre-pandemic, again, they used to do therapy sessions in here, and it would be very similar to what, what the girls do in the centre as well. Um, but they would also um, speak to families who of patients who were here and would link them into the services that they have out in the community. So they do memory caps and they do it in the Chesters. So they take all of their patients with dementia and families to um, breakfast and have their memory caff in the, in the Chesters oh, along the road. Cracking, yeah, fantastic. And the, and the people at the help really benefit from this and they provide a lot of advice and support to families as well and, and the person with dementia. They also do a befriending service um, and that went telephone wide during the pandemic as well um, so they're a fantastic service and, and deserve a lot of support as well and um, we're hoping to get those guys back soon as well uh, start up our therapy sessions again yeah it's really lovely to see the centre kind of fill, filling up again yeah. and having things that'll be even better when there's even more on because I know it'll just mm-hmm. keep the patients really busy and yeah. give them so much more support um, and we also use the this is me leaflet from the Alzheimer's Society Chris why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it's making a difference so the This Is Me leaflet involves gathering information about a person, so it can be the likes, dislikes, what they like to be called, what food they like to be eat, all the things that really in a day-to-day life with class is very, very important, but that doesn't necessarily seem to translate or it, when, when you're admitted into hospital. So as part of an initiative, actually, that's been going on for some while, but the, the latest sort of... Um, iteration where we're going to relaunch it really after COVID to try and um, bring the use of that document back into the fore is that we now have 
an electronic submission of the This Is Me on our website. We also have an email address where you could submit This Is Me or similar documents. So for instance, care homes use similar but different documents about patients' likes and dislikes. And the hope is that the team will receive that information. They will now be able to upload it to our electronic systems, um, which will be part of the patient records. The team will also translate it onto the various wall boards on our on our ward so that information is straight at hand there for the nurses and the hope is that having information such as what is the person's favourite food or even what job they used to do will help not only increase dietary intake but also conversations and socialisation with the nurses because knowing somebody's been a minor or a footballer or you know a glassmaker can give you a point of sort of initiation for a conversation and I think it will make a massive difference to the organisation and again, the, the initiative couldn't really be fully carried out without you know, DDOT's full involvement. So it's wonderful to have that resource to enable the trust to sort of move forward with its ambitions of making care fully personalised. Yeah. And I've seen that in action on wards when you have the board behind somebody's bed and you know, it's got their name as Ada. But actually, they get called Sarah. So yes. you know, it's it's gonna you know, it, it, they're more likely to respond to the the name they get called on a regular basis, even though their actual name is Ada, I guess. And um, it's really really common that in in sort of the older population where they, they go by a completely different name. And a funny anecdotal story was my granddaughter was known as Edward. I called him Edward all of his life. It was actually Ted. And when he came into hospital, it had Joseph Cairns on his um, board. I'm like, who's that? Turns out he's busted. But he went by Edward, which was his middle yeah. name all his life, and nobody in the family knew. So I guess on your records it's one thing, isn't yeah. it? So it just goes to show that, you know, all these little things turn up and it just makes yeah. must make such a difference to patients to know that, you know, somebody's trying to get give them food that they don't like or, mm-hmm. you know, chat to them about something and they don't know what they what they're talking about it must just be so much easier to have that pop that in, in into the conversation Absolutely. it's just the little things sometimes yeah. isn't it i suppose everything i mean this must be really useful across the board when it comes to patients as well though not just our old patients yes. uh, because we all have our little quirks don't we Absolutely. so the team also promote our carers passport which is a trust initiative and we also support the john's uh, what's known as john's campaign which is a national thing so uh why don't each of you take one of those to talk about how they help us make a difference so I'll talk about John's campaign first. So John's campaign, we've, we've been a member of John's campaign for some time, so prior to COVID. 2014-15. Yeah, I can't even remember the year. Um, the purpose of John's campaign was that, I believe, uh, Nikki Gerard set that up. I'll have to fact check myself. <laughs> um, and it was to allow open visiting to the wards. I think the, the initial campaign aim was that people come into hospital they often spend a lot of time with the carers perhaps all day and all of a sudden they're in hospital and you can only come for a couple of hours a day at a specific time in what is a very artificial scenario of a ward environment and so the aim of that campaign was to open up visiting um, for people to to visit their relatives whether they have dementia or delirium or another illness because actually having a family member can reduce your anxiety your stress levels but it can also help the staff because that person may be able to assist in, for instance, feeding or, you know, even, you know, getting that person ready in the morning. And I know personally I would be absolutely mortified if a stranger was to assist getting me ready in the morning. I'd much rather have, say, my wife or whoever come in and assist. And so there's all these things that we don't consider when somebody's in hospital. And the aim of that campaign was to allow people to visit their, their family members whenever they wanted. 
great stuff. And Claire, do you want to tell us a little bit about our carer's passport? Yeah, and I think on the back of John's campaign, mm. the Trust developed the carer's passport. Me and Chris did a lot of work on it initially, um, but then um, the patient experience team took that on. So it's, it's for anyone really with a carer. The carer might be a paid carer or an unpaid carer. There's a lot of unpaid carers for f- family members in our trust. Um, these people might just provide a little bit of support at home or a lot of support at home. And it's about very similar to John's campaign, getting those people involved during admission. And um, the carer's passports, um, the families or carers, you'll see them with the uh, orange sorry lanyard on. And it's got a little pass card there. All of the carers' passports can be obtained from the patient experience team. A lot of our wards have their own carers' passport boxes. Um, and it's about being open and getting the people in to provide assistance. A lot of people think care is just physical care, but it's not. It might just be sitting, keeping someone calm who's got a delirium or dementia who might be a bit distressed and unsettled during their admission. It might be assisting, like Chris said, with diet and fluids. It might be doing the therapeutic part of it and physically giving care as well. Um, and, it, and it covers the, the admission 24-7. And it's it's been, I think, the uptake's been quite good following COVID like Chris said you get a couple of hours visiting a day that's not sufficient for some people a lot of people and it's not just for people with delirium or dementia it's for anyone across the board people with learning disabilities anyone anyone at all yeah and we need to do a podcast about the carer's passport because I think it's a really important thing it is in the pipeline um and it would be really good to go into a little bit more detail but Mm -hmm. um I know our patient experience team have have said to me and I think we'll try to get this across and um information we sent out that some people don't class themselves as a carer and don't realise they're a carer when actually they are yeah um and it's just about having those conversations to make sure that people realise you know they can play such a huge part in somebody's recovery and re- yeah. rehabilitation so we'll certainly need to to give people a shout out for that but we also have world alzheimer's day coming up in september so you're working on plans as ever so what what are we going to be doing to market so i mean one of our other new elder life program assistance Catherine Russell she's going to lead that this year so it's 21st of September we're going to have another open day we did have one for delirium awareness day but we want to get people here to the Alexandra Centre show them around so it's open to carers families staff patients anyone can come along there's going to be a lot of information stands and um, a lot of the equipment that we use um, will be on display as well we'll have a, an ever popular cake sale to raise money for our charitable funds there will be a raffle a tombola and lots of fun and activities as well. You can get involved in some of the activities that we do with our patients as well. Um, and we will be showing off our happiness programme as well. Yes, we've got some information to share on that as well, so people will see that. It's like a, a projector that people can play games on, yeah. and it does all sorts of different things that um, it's really quite amazing, isn't it? Uh, so that'll be great. Um, and always a bonus when there's cake on offer. Yeah, definitely. Um, Alexandra Centre is always the centre of all things sweet and sugary and we also every year run the nightwear before christmas and i always love this is one of my favorite stories of the year i loved it when i was a reporter and i still love kind of pushing out the information claire why don't you tell us a little bit about what the team do and um how people can help so it started many many years ago very small where the team had were just very tiny in the infancy round on a56 in the back of their day room and they decided that on Christmas Eve they will buy pyjamas for the patients so that the same as the rest of us we all get new I don't know what it is Christmas Eve we all get new pyjamas I always got mine on Christmas Day but did you? I always yeah. got mine on what did you? Christmas, Christmas Eve, Eve, yeah. Christmas yeah. Eve. Yeah. I must be the only person that didn't get pyjamas on Christmas it, Eve even, even now at this age I still get a new too. set of pyjamas yeah. Christmas Eve yeah 
So that, that's where it started. All the patients on E56 got them. Then the team got bigger and developed and we got the Alexandra Centre. So we thought, oh, we could do this for all of our older patients um, on our care of the older person's wards. So over the years, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And at the, the, the highest point, I think we had, had 2,500 sets of nightwear donated from, from as far as Canada. Lots of local businesses get involved, Sunderland Empire, the Fans Museum, the Department of Works and Pensions are absolutely amazing every year. And it's not just pyjamas, we end up with everything donated, toiletries, footwear, dayware, lots of different things that would benefit the patients. And we spread it out trust-wide as well. We share things with maternity, ED, all over the place. And it obviously, the pandemic hit again, and we had to stop it, but... In the last couple of years, we've built on that again and we're gradually getting there. South Tyneside are involved in the um, discharge lounge. You can donate anything for South Tyneside at the discharge lounge. Um, those guys will sort that out over there for you. So we'll be publicising that at the beginning with your help. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna try and push it out early this year because people yeah. are more organised than me and do their Christmas shopping much earlier. Yeah. Um, and I think we just need to make sure that people, when they're out getting the, the Christmas... I know some people are already started... Um, when they're getting the Christmas presents, they can stick an extra ninety or a pair of pajamas or whatever in the in no. the basket when they're going round. It's great for the patients as well because not a lot of our patients have family members mm. to buy them buy them anything at Christmas, and a lot of people are having to wear hospital pajamas and night dresses and gowns and things like that. And along with the trust present that they get, because the trust buys everyone toiletries, they get their their new pajamas as well. And we make a big deal out of it and take pictures and get people involved. So it's very popular. I've been on a little tour around the wards, and it is like the the team dress up. Yeah, as um, elves. As elves, because they are elves, um, and you know it really brightens people's day as well. And they're all ready to be given out on Christmas Eve, as it turns out. And we also have a dignity cupboard cupboard as well. So what is that, and how can people help us? So the Dignity Cupboard, again, it's it's for anyone within the Trust. So we ask for people to donate day clothes, night clothes, footwear, underwear, toiletries, shaving equipment, particularly for men, um, razors and shaving gel and things like that. Because again, not a lot of our patients have people who can bring things in for them. People from care homes, if they haven't got family, the care homes can't, the care staff can't bring their their belongings over to the hospital for them because of the, you know, they just they haven't got the transport mm-hmm. and things like that. So we provide any patients rather than keeping them in hospital attire, we provide um, nightwear, daywear, anything that they need um, during their admission. And again, like I said, it's trust wide. We give stuff to whoever needs it. Um, and everything comes from donations. We do lots of different charitable things to raise money to buy things. We've done the Great North Road. We've done charity backpacks, um, cake sales. We've done a um, charity bed push along the seafront. Um, from, I'm up for doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> from Rogan to Whitburn. That was quite fun, actually. That was, and we raised a lot of money. That was with June Ainsley. She's one of our... Um, bigger support as her mum was one of our first patients when we opened the Alexandra Centre and she'd had quite negative experiences during a hospital admission with her mum but everything for whatever reason everything became positive afterwards and when she had the support of the team and could call on the team if her mum was admitted and there was issues with go and educate the staff on the ward and just explain about her mum and her mum's dementia and things like that and it was about again it's just communication and she raises lots of money for the team and provides lots of donations as well so she deserves a shout out i'm sure we're very grateful for everybody that like her you know gives a little bit of time and support to make us 
to help us do what we do. So uh, we're also looking to update the memory wall, it, as we've already mentioned in the Alexander Centre. What kind of things are you both looking for? And uh, if we've got a bit of a wish list, we can give a shout out. Yeah, we're looking for, we've decided, it, it, part of it is, you know, local businesses and industries and things like that, the mines, um, folks and things like that, like you said. But we're, we're going to do different decades because not all of our patients, like we say, we 65 years and older primarily, but we do see younger patients and a lot of younger people are starting to be diagnosed mm. with dementia as well. Young, on, young onset dementia is becoming a bigger issue now. So we're going to go for different decades, starting from the 50s up to the noughties. So we're after any kind of memorabilia from each decade, that would be beneficial. One of them we're going to do um, SAFC, obviously, so anyone who's got any memorabilia. They're not very big windows because they're set back from the wall, so it doesn't have to be a lot of things. It's just, again, tactile things that patients can hold and invoke memories and, and provoke discussion and things like that as well. What kind of things would you like to see, Chris? Well, if anybody wants to donate a Ferrari, I'm more than happy to take it. <laughs> Might home. struggle to get in here, um, but certainly. But yeah, we'll 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 take turns using it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah to be fair, toys are one of those things yeah. because even we play with toys, but also our children and our grandchildren play with yeah. toys. So that's a really good point, actually. But I, I think, joking aside, you know, it can be anything, even something that reminds you of past occupations. So we're talking about mining and things, but typewriters, mm-hmm. um, you know, other objects that we we would look at, things that we'd use at home, you know. Um, or post and and things like that but even if you look at the 80s you know a lot of people still who who are now moving into sort of the the older generation will have lived through the 80s so you know old cds hi-fi equipment yeah cds um, are old now yeah <laughs> um yeah my my kids yeah wouldn't know wouldn't have used a cd it's it's strange but old cds hi-fi equipment we've got a vinyl record player here that we can use you know, Walkmans and, and, and things like that, perhaps that you wouldn't think of as perhaps too far in the distant past, but actually are now. You know, anything like that, um, implements that people have used to bring up the children, you know, all nappy pegs and things like that always generate a lot of discussion as well. Uh, really anything, to be honest, you'd be amazed at what can evoke people's memories. Great stuff. Well, I'm going to read out a couple of email addresses here. So if anybody would like to get involved, whether it's... Um, Network before Christmas or a dignity cupboard or um, asking if they can gift uh, some items to us, they can send uh, me an email. So our uh, team email address is stsft.trustcoms, double M, uh, at nhs.net. So that's stsft.trustcoms at nhs.net. Or you can find my email address on our media section on our website. Um, my email address and telephone number is there. So anybody can just give me a quick shout and um, we'll do our best to help them out. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you for having us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Our People Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Check out our other stories. Hit subscribe to keep up with the latest and catch up with what we've been up to on our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Just search for our name.